This morning we're focusing on the Eighth Commandment for a second week, continuing to explain the meaning of the commandment and expand upon how it should influence our hearts and our lives. As Pastor Steve mentioned last week, Jesus talked a lot about money. He talked about money and possessions more than he talked about some other basic things in the Christian life, like prayer. So it's really important uh, that we think about these uh, money and resources and how they relate to the second commandment, how we're called to use them, not just because Jesus talked about it a lot, but also because the whole of the Bible does. We need the Bible's wisdom in this area of our lives because we think about money a lot too, don't we? And we know that we need it. The Eighth Commandment is a rather short one. You shall not steal. The word in Hebrew is pretty straightforward, as in our English translation. Stealing is defined as taking someone else's property without permission, especially in secret or by force. Beyond this, the word in Hebrew and in other Semitic languages and cognates often has a a similar, another meaning or another connotation that involves this idea of hiddenness or deception or stealth. And we have a similar expression in English, too. If we talk about someone, like, stealing out of the room, it doesn't mean that they stole the room. It means that they left really quietly and in a sneaky kind of way, right? So um, that is the background of the idea. We'll look at a number of different scriptures today, but we'll begin as we do always with prayer. So please pray with me. Father, indeed, we come before your word as those who want to be changed by it, want to be influenced by it, want to live in submission to it. So we ask that you would be our teacher and our guide this morning. We pray that you would be the one who uh, leads us into truth. Your word, we know, is truth. And we want to be people who can separate truth from error. We want to be people who can understand how your message changes everything about our lives and how that means something for us each day. So now as we come to your word, we pray you would guide and direct, uh, give me the words that are yours, uh, and use through your spirit, would you teach us and guide us? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe a handful of you are familiar with uh, the uh, science fiction writer Douglas Adams. Uh, He began his 1979 science fiction series, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, with these sentences. So this is science fiction. This is 1979. (laughs) Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded, excuse me, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly 92 million miles is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose life forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think that digital watches are a pretty neat idea. The planet has, or rather had, and if you know the story, you know what that means, The planet has, or rather had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd, because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. 
And so the problem remained. Lots of people were mean, and most of them were miserable, even the ones with digital watches. Adams, of course, isn't notoriously funny. He's notoriously cynical. He was an atheist. But he speaks wisdom here, doesn't he? Most of the solutions that people propose or seek for their unhappiness involve small green pieces of paper and what it can give you. Stealing, in all of its forms, is the attempted shortcut to happiness that ultimately won't satisfy the problem of human misery. And because God loves us, he tells us so. He tells us, don't steal. And it implies, all that that means and all that the Bible says about it implies it won't make you happy. Your life isn't wrapped up in little green pieces of paper. So to begin, as we think about a biblical view of the issue of property, the issue of stealing, we'll um, think that for a minute about the idea that stealing implies ownership. Our definition of stealing describes the taking of someone else's property. And we understand certain things about property ownership. But if you think about it carefully, there's a difference between having something in your possession and owning something and owning that thing. On the one hand, the owner, the one who owns whatever it is, has the right of possession. If he's the owner, he has the possession and control of the thing. But on the other hand, there are situations, of course, where the one who possesses something isn't actually the owner, isn't actually the legal owner. And I think on a cosmic scale, we can get this idea, right? The whole earth is owned by God. The whole universe is God's possession. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. The Apostle Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians as well. And we can establish this fact with a whole host of other texts. But further, we see that God, the true owner, has given possession of the earth to humanity. As it says in Psalm 115, 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. So humanity has been given possession, not ownership, but possession of the earth. And we could go back to Genesis 1 and look at this idea of how how Adam and Eve were commanded to rule over the earth and subdue it. God didn't tell them that he had given it to them to own. He had given it to them to steward. He had given a possession of it to them to rule over, to have authority over it, and to subdue the world. And so this is the idea, right, of the difference between possession and ownership. And so since God is the ultimate authority over everything, no one can say to God, this is mine, you can't have it. Because he's the one who gives all men life and breath and everything else, as Paul tells us in Acts 17. You don't have anything that isn't ultimately a gift. No matter how hard you've worked, no matter how long the odds are to get what you possess, we can still ask more fundamental questions, right? Who gave you hands to labor? Who gave you a brain to think? Who gave you a heart to pump oxygen throughout your body so that you could work hard 
and succeed, right? And so this, I want to establish this fact first because it changes the way we relate to the world, the way we relate to all of our stuff. But it's countercultural. Our culture doesn't necessarily think this way, right? Our culture prizes ownership. They ask you, you know, do you rent or do you own your house? How many of us can say, you don't have to raise your hands, how many of us can, can say we own our house? We say, I own my house, but I don't really own my house. I own a small portion of my house, right? We, our culture prizes this idea of ownership and this idea of someone who is a self-made person who did it their way, who didn't rely on anyone but beat the odds and succeeded and, and look at what their life has become, right? Sometimes those people give glory to God Sometimes they don't. But if God owns it all, then how are we to possess? How are we to possess that which has been entrusted to us? And so we'll look at a few cases in the Old Testament of the way that God designed people to understand their property and how to regulate it. The Bible, again, as we notice, talks a lot about property. It talks about rights of those who possess something. Uh, property rights you find all over the Old Testament laws for governing the society of ancient Israel. We get a lot of information there. One place that a lot of these laws are put together is in, ex- in the, um, Exodus 21 to th- 23. This section is called the Covenant Codes, and um, it comes actually right after the Ten Commandments. But these codes include some of the civil laws given to ancient Israel related to personal injury, related to property, uh, and all of these kinds of things. If you haven't looked at these recently, maybe you haven't, uh, I want to give you just a sample. Um, this is Exodus 21, starting in verse 35. If a man's bull injures the bull of another and it dies, uh, they are to sell the live one and divide both uh, the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had a habit of goring, Yet the owner did not keep it penned up. The owner must pay uh, animal for animal. And the dead animal becomes his, and he has to give the other man the live animal. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after the sunrise, then he is guilty of of bloodshed. A thief must certainly make restitution, but if he has nothing, he must be sold to pay for his theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in his possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, he must pay back double. If a man grazes his livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in another man's field, he must make restitution from the best of his own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. I could go on for a while, but maybe you're kind of getting the idea, right? The basis of a lot of our laws, our sense of judgment, our ideas about restitution and about punishment come from the Bible because the Bible says a lot about property, And it says a lot about justice and how to divide things and how to make life fair. These principles come from God. And again, they're the basis of much of what we understand as justice. 
So that's this idea, again, that, that God cares about property. There's another specific example, and that's the land, the possession of the land of Israel. The promised land, that is not, of course, the quartet who will be here tonight, but the land of Canaan, was a gift for the people of Israel, but it was still God's possession. And in Leviticus 25, there's a, a whole series of, of uh, again, more information and laws about how this worked. In Leviticus 25, 23, it says this, The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, this is God speaking, and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. The inheritance rules about the land of Israel were an important way to prevent the economic divide between rich and poor to grow. The law contained many safeguards like this. And so there was this idea of the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, the possession of the land returned to the family of the original inheritor. So if you became poor and you had to sell your land through, through whatever reason, through an injury or an inability to work or someone died, or for whatever reason, if you became poor, you could sell your land, but basically you were renting it out until the year of Jubilee, and then it would come back to you. In the same way, uh, or, or, and so what this did, of course, is it prevents the land from being monopolized. It prevents the land from being hoarded. It prevents one family who's wealthy from gathering more and more wealth and taking up the whole thing, right? There's another idea here in Leviticus 25 of the provision for someone to sell themselves into servitude. If they become poor and they have a debt and they can't repay it, they can sell themselves into servitude, but after a period of years, then they're automatically freed. Right? So there's this idea that God is building into his laws of principles to prevent, right, to prevent there being a permanent underclass. To prevent this idea that there can be people who gain more and more and more and more of the wealth. So the idea of individual property was woven into the Old Testament laws for ancient Israel. But there were safeguards, provisions to make the society just, to make it equitable, and to make it merciful to reflect God's heart. So in the big picture, the Old Testament laws for Israel related to property and all of these things don't reflect any particular modern economic system, right? They don't reflect pure capitalism or pure communism or something else like that, but they contain principles that should be wisely reflected in any human economic system. That's what the Old Testament describes. What do we find in the New Testament? Well, of course, the civil laws that govern ancient Israel as a society aren't in force anymore, but God's people are still called to live according to the principles of loving God and loving neighbor and doing so with economics. Besides all of Jesus' words about money and possessions, in Acts 2 we get another description of the earliest Christians. Luke records that, uh, this is Acts 2, 44 and 45, all of the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And so we see this idea of the earliest Christians sharing everything for the good of everyone. 
Throughout church history, of course, many groups of Christians have tried to live out this kind of sharing of possessions in community in various settings with various degrees of success. There's something about this ideal that's, that's really noble, isn't it? That's really a corrective to our radical individualism and our radical sense of autonomy and what is mine is mine and what is yours is yours. And Right? There's this big separation between us. But, of course, since people are sinful, this is really hard to live out. Uh, We should remember that the passage in Acts isn't telling us what we must do, but it's describing what happened in this unique era and community. So there was this idea, and even we see it in the example of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold a piece of land and gave a portion of the proceeds uh, to the church because there was this Uh, the sense of community and sharing of everything. The New Testament teaching is that giving to one another and the sharing of possessions in the believing community is voluntary. That it doesn't come from the law, it comes from the heart. Generosity is a mark of a heart that has been changed by the grace of the gospel, isn't it? The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, remember this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The context of Paul's words is his encouragement for the church of Corinth to participate in generous giving to other churches. As Paul goes from church to church, he collects offerings sometimes to help out another body of Christians who are in some kind of trouble. But it's all voluntary, and Paul is encouraging generosity as part of their understanding of the gospel. So to summarize, God is the owner of everything. He's the one who gives life and health and the ability and all of these gifts to people. He's provided a world of resources for us to use wisely as our possession under his ownership. So God cares, Old Testament and New Testament, how we view our things. He cares how we use our things. His law provides principles that balance economic generosity and economic responsibility. Those applied in a particular way in ancient Israel, those principles apply for us in the believing community today and should, could and should be a part of the way that governments operate. It's wisdom from God for all people at all time. Well, what does all of this mean about stealing? The bigger issue related to stealing deals exactly with these ideas. How do we view our possessions? How do we love our neighbor economically? The Shorter Catechism, question 75, says, The Eighth Commandment forbids whatever does or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. It's a mouthful, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism always is, but it's a fancy way to say right, that we're forbidden from hindering, from working against unjustly, the wealth of ourselves and of our neighbor. What are some practical examples from the Bible as they relate to today related to this idea of stealing? 
Well, there's a category of outright stealing. That is, taking someone else's possessions. In the Bible, we see things like we read already about stealing animals, you know, cattle rustling, um, all those kinds of, like, moving boundary uh, lines for property. So there were provisions about that. There were provisions about not paying taxes. I was reading today that 79% of people, uh, according to some survey, think that it's morally wrong to cheat on your taxes. It's estimated that 1.6 million people, 1.6 million people cheat on their taxes every year on their federal taxes to the tune of, guess how much money? This, I mean, of course, it's estimating. They're cheating, right? But guess how much money? $270 billion is estimated to be lost a quarter of a trillion dollars out of a, what, $4 trillion budget? 5%, 6%, 7% of the federal budget is lost because, or that income, that amount of income is lost because people cheat on their taxes. Another issue that theologians have understood from the Eighth Commandment is what in older versions of the Bible they call man-stealing. It's kidnapping, it's forced slavery, horrible things like that, but it's also things that are more common, like not compensating a worker fairly for their labor. One of the basic calculations, economic calculations, is that you trade your time, the best part of your day unless you work, like shift work or something, right? You trade your time, you trade your energy, you trade your health. Sometimes you even trade your safety for money. You work because you're getting paid. The longer you work, the more dangerous the job, the more you should be paid. And there are all these, you know, calculations based on, um, you know, education and everything else. But that's the basic calculation, right? And sometimes we see examples, um, you know, particularly I think of in the sports world, where athletes retire at the age of 25 or something like that. Because why? Because they have ongoing health concerns, because they have had a lot of injuries, because the person reaches the point of realizing that the cost to their physical health, perhaps now, perhaps in the future, is greater than their desire to play and the compensation that they can make for being a professional athlete. Trading, health, time, effort for money. Once I was talking to a guy, he played uh, college football. He mostly played on special teams. Uh, He had some NFL teams who had invited him to, to try out as an undrafted player. But he decided not to do that. And so we were talking about, uh, you know, what it was like. And he just, he thought that it was... It was too hard, that the pain wasn't worth it, that his body couldn't do it. So we were talking about how hard it was for him to be a Division I football player. And someone in the conversation said, well, but you got your education for free, right? And he said, there was nothing free about my college education. In many ways, he'll be paying for it for the rest of his life. It's kind of like taking out student loans, right? Right? He'll be paying the toll on his body for four years of playing football or five years if he redshirted, right, is, is something that he'll pay for for the rest of his life. He got an education, yes, but that was an exchange, a calculation that he made. 
The point of all this is that we break the Eighth Commandment when we take more from a worker, when we take more of their health, more of their time, than they're being compensated for. That's a form of stealing, according to the Bible. Another category of stealing in the Bible that we find is dishonest business practices. The Bible gives us examples of things that God hates, like using rigged weights for unfair measuring, right? You have one set of weights when you're uh, buying something. You do use a different set of weights when you're selling something in order to make money on both ends, right? God says he hates that. He hates when his people in Israel were charging interest to poor people. They were exploiting them. Predatory loans, payday loans kind of a thing, right? Another example is selling bad products or lying about goods. Proverbs twenty fourteen says, It's no good, it's no good, says the buyer. Then off he goes and boasts about his purchase. Isn't that great? That's what we do, right? Oh, no, that's worthless. No, no, you're ripping me off, right? Hey, look at the deal I got, right? That's the way life works, bragging and lying and taking advantage of another person. When I was at the end of high school and after my first year of college, I had a car that I hated. It was an 84-ish Mazda 323. It was a three-speed automatic, so it didn't even have overdrive. So it didn't even get good gas mileage because to get the thing up to 65, you know, you're running high RPMs and it's, you know, whining along. It was completely unsporty, you know, it had no power. And so this was my college car for the first year. I was home for the summer. I saw a used car that I liked. It was an 88 Dodge Daytona Shelby, a five-speed with the turbo. <laughs> More than any car I've had in the 25-ish years since, I loved that car. <laughs> so I told my dad that I saw this car, and he said, well, why don't you go talk to the dealer? Just me? I've never negotiated with a used car dealer before, but sure, I'll go. So I go into this guy's office, and... And there's another guy sitting there, and they're, like, talking. And so I felt kind of awkward immediately because I'm sort of interrupting. And he's like, you know, what do you want? He doesn't really know me. And so I'm trying to introduce myself, and he kind of knows my dad. And I said, I, you know, I like this car, um, you know, this Daytona. I've got this Mazda to trade it in. So what does he say? Does it run okay? Well, what I neglected to tell you was that every time this Mazda shifted from first to second... It made some terrible noises, right? Every time it's like first to second kind of a thing. So what did I say? Uh, yeah, it runs okay. <laughs> After a couple more times of talking to him, I bought the Daytona. I don't know if he ever rode, drove the Mazda. To know that the transmission was in trouble, maybe it helps my conscience a bit to think that he should have done that. But he took my word for it. And, and I broke the Eighth Commandment. I mean, I sold him. I mean, weeks later, we saw that car in front of the transmission shop down the road. <laughs> right? I mean, you still feel a little guilty about it years later. But that's a temptation. And that's something that we uh, can do to 
sell, uh, to lie about what we have and to sell something uh, sort of unjustly. Finally, the example of stealing that the Bible talks about that I think kind of gets deeper is the idea of stealing the heart. It's a Hebrew idiom. It means the use of deception or trickery or fraud uh, or to defraud someone, to take advantage of someone. It occurs a couple of different times in the Old Testament. Once is in the story of Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31. Of course, Jacob has been deceived by Laban a number of times in the course of his service to his father-in-law. But in the end, Jacob runs away. And Laban catches up to him and accuses him of stealing his heart, of deceiving him as he ran away with his, with Jacob's property, with Jacob's wives, with all of his children and everything else. There's another example in 2 Samuel 15, 6. It says, I think, 13, 6, but it's 15, 6. The author describes how Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel through flattery and falsehood. I'll read this from 2 Samuel 15. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself. This is Absalom as King David's son. He provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Uh, and your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Right? Without hearing their claim, he says, Oh, you need justice. I'm going to help you. I know you have a valid claim. Oh, don't treat me like I'm the prince. Come on. You know, we're, we're friends here, right? He stole the hearts away from his father, the king, by deceiving the people. See how he's violating the Eighth Commandment, right? He's saying, I would treat you much more fairly than my father would. And I am taking, I'm deceiving you. I'm taking uh, from you what is not honest. How does this work today? Well, we live in a world that wants to steal our hearts. We live in a world that wants to steal our hearts. One of the typical ways it does so is it exploits our fears, it exploits our insecurities, it exploits our greed, it exploits our lust. Advertisers and marketers know how to do this really well. And we fall for it all the time. And the enemy would feed on our weaknesses with a message that happiness is found apart from a relationship with God, that it's okay to cheat on our taxes because the government is so corrupt anyway, and that profit margins are more important than people, and it's just capitalism, right? And this, I think, is where we get to the real substance of the commandment. At the root of stealing 
is treating someone as less than you, that their rights are less than yours, that their needs are less important than yours. That's where I think the Eighth Commandment takes us. So what does that mean for us today? How do we apply it? I wanted to think, I want you to know this, coming away from the sermon, know this. God owns everything. He's graciously given humanity a world of resources to possess and to use wisely, with him always in view. Know that your property and your life is not yours to claim as your own and do whatever you want with it. Don't claim that you've earned it without really giving God the credit. So I want us to know. I want us to know that God owns everything. I want us to believe that stealing in all of its various manifestations betrays a heart that's not satisfied in God and in God's provision for one's life. Stealing is based upon the lie that happiness is about the movement of little green pieces of paper. Believe instead that happiness comes in a relationship with God and that things shouldn't and can't replace that. Finally, what should we do as a result of this sermon? How can we summarize it in just one little sentence? Love people, use things. Love people, use things. It's a slogan, slogan that's not my own. Uh, it's from these two guys who are known as the minimalists. They've made a documentary and have been traveling around with this message that, you're, uh, that too much stuff is bad for you. As far as I know, they aren't believers in Christ, but I think that they get this commandment. The Eighth Commandment teaches us that loving people and obeying God involves the right and proper and just use of things. This is obvious, it's obvious, right? But we so often are tempted to get it turned around. Love things, use people. Right? That's how we're tempted to work. That's how our society works. And ultimately what that does is it treats someone as less than human. It neglects their need while meeting yours. People are reduced to economic units. And that's nothing like the message of Christ. Jesus has a different message for us about the worth of every person, about how to use our stuff, about where it comes from, and about what it means to love each other with what we have. As we come to the table, we see this message of Christ, don't we? That he set aside his glory, the glory of heaven, in obedience to the Father to meet the greatest need of people. For our stealing... We find forgiveness. In exchange for our disobedience, we're given great resources in a relationship with Him. We can't earn it like we can't earn our life and our health and our breath or anything else. He gives it to us. It's a gift because He loves us, and that's good news for us this morning, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning that You are... Uh, a good giver of all things. And we thank you this morning that we have uh, an abundance because of your grace. Not just of things that we have, not just of property and possessions, but we have an abundance 
the most abundance, the biggest abundance in a relationship with you. We pray that you would help us in our hearts to push back against the messages that we hear about our stuff and how it defines our lives. Instead, help us to make investments in eternity, in the kingdom, and in what's uh, the things that are really important. God, we're thankful that this message is, is about forgiveness and grace to us, to avoid harm uh, and to find life. Uh, help us to live according to your words, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.